0: ship code even faster than ever before, but the state of production is now this totally, you know, wild west. I tend to be a pretty product-oriented person, and so I put my product hat on when I have these conversations, and I'm always trying to figure out how are we gonna empathize with the people who we have to build products for. I don't want to solve the most complex problem, I want to solve the most painful problem that's the easiest thing to solve. One of the problems you have as a very early stage project, especially is People don't
1: want to rely on you. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. Today we're talking to William Morgan, CEO and founder of Buoyant, a company that primarily focuses on contributing to the open source service mesh project, Linkerd. Linkerd was born out of William and his co-founder Oliver's experience building infrastructure at Twitter, where they were responsible for reducing the frequency in which the infamous fail whale surfaced. The opening portion of the episode gives us a unique look at how Twitter eventually scaled their platform by adopting cloud native technologies and how one of the patterns that they discovered ultimately became the inspiration for Linkerd. We then go into the strategies of gaining adoption and viable business models for open source-based companies, and we wrap up our conversation with a deeper look at the benefits of Linkerd and how its function can provide value for any organization adopting a cloud-native approach to their architecture. All right, William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Grant. Cool, so let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and maybe a bit how you got into enterprise software.
0: So, I am the CEO of Boyant, which is a company that I founded with my colleague Oliver Gould a couple of years ago. And we were actually both engineers at Twitter during a kind of very formative time for the infrastructure world at Twitter. Because when we started there around 2010, Twitter was still a monolithic Ruby on Rails app, which we lovingly called the Monorail.
1: Oh, I think I remember, was there a fail whale around that time? Yeah,
0: there were a lot of fail whales, yeah. And then by the time we left, you know, about four or five years later, Twitter's infrastructure was totally different. It was microservices, and containers, and orchestrators, and all that stuff. And going through that experience firsthand informed pretty much everything that we've done since with, with Buoyant and with uh, some of our open source projects.
1: I feel like I haven't seen that fail whale in a while, so maybe you guys did an okay job there. Yeah, well that's the most amazing thing
0: about this, that it actually worked. You know, it's, it's very rare to have these kind of wide-ranging infrastructure initiatives and to have them actually succeed at the end. And it was also rare, honestly, for anything to really succeed at Twitter at that point in time. But magically, this worked, and it worked really well. And so we haven't seen the fail whale a whole lot uh, ever since.
1: Okay, so the backstory here is that you were at Twitter, where you were in sort of this formative engineering role, working on the infrastructure that like, was kind of at the time when like, Docker and things were starting to come of age, is that right? That's right. Although Twitter didn't know anything about Docker and didn't use Docker. Okay, so, so I mean, just tell us a little bit about like, what you worked on at Twitter to make this all work and then kind of how that ties into what you're doing at Buoyant today.
0: Yeah, so the transformation at Twitter that happened you know, from this monolith into this massive microservices thing was done,
1: I think, without really
0: knowing what we were getting into. And without having a lot of tooling that was existing out there to build on top of. So, you know, nowadays you have things like Docker and Kubernetes and circa 2010, those things, they weren't there or they weren't prevalent enough for us really to know about them, but the concepts were the same. And so Twitter didn't have Docker, but it had containerization in the form of, well, we had C groups, you know, which would do resource limitations. And we had the JVM, which was kind of like a packaging mechanism in, in a lot of ways, and Twitter didn't have Kubernetes, but we had Mesos. Mesos was a grad student project, and we had to do a lot of work to turn it into a production ready system. But that was the orchestration layer. And you know, we didn't have the word microservices. Or maybe that word was out there and we just didn't know about it, but we called this thing an SOA. And we kinda knew that was a bad word, but we didn't know what else to call it, because we were like decoupling, you know,
1: into services. So that's services-oriented architecture, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And were you aware of what Google was doing with Borg at the time? Was that something you had seen or heard about? Some of the engineers who were core to
0: this initiative had come from Google. And so they had these ideas in their heads. But Borg was not a product we could rely on. And it was kind of like a, a thing that people had been exposed to and that we generally knew was a good idea.
1: Okay. So you'd kind of seen that there's this pattern. And maybe Google was pretty good at keeping their services up, right? I think like the SRE handbook talks about how people. Ping Google to see if their, if their internet connection works. So maybe Google was building fairly reliable software, and Twitter could use some of those same kind of principles and core concepts to get that same level of reliability.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we knew we needed something, right? By the, even by the time I was there, 2010, you know, there was a World Cup, the the, the soccer World Cup in the summer of 2010, and. You know, I remember being in the lunchroom <laughs> with the other Twitter employees watching it and every time there was a goal, Twitter would fall over because everyone would tweet goal, 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 and then like the site couldn't keep up. And I think that was the last moment in time when we were like, Okay, you know, this Ruby on Rails monolith is a path forward. Because we had actually done a lot of work to make this thing performant. In fact, I think it was the highest performing Ruby system in the world or something
1: at the time. So you'd like stretch it to its limits, but you needed to go further. Yeah, that's
0: right. I mean, we had like refined the garbage collector. We had like gotten into really deep into the Ruby runtime,
1: but yeah, it just it wasn't viable going forward. Where was the world in terms of cloud at this point? Like, were you running AWS? Were you running your own systems? How was that all working?
0: Uh, AWS was certainly around, but everything at this point at Twitter was on-prem's.
1: Okay, so you had your own data centers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There had been a world
0: prior to 2010 when Twitter was in a a colo facility, but by the time I was there, you know, those were our machines. You know, these were physical machines that we were SSHing to or whatever and, and doing things with. So they weren't
1: VMs. Okay. So you have logical access to all of these machines and your team is, you know, when there's an outage, are you SSHing into these machines to try to fix things? How how are you fixing things at that point?
0: Uh, yeah. Sometimes you were SSHing into machines. Sometimes you were doing other things. Uh, you know, the the only point I was making is that, you know, this was not in the cloud. Sure. These were, you know, these were physical machines that, you know, that had names, and we knew those names. And when you spun up a new service or whatever, you'd be assigned like, hey, here's the three machines that you get this thing to run on.
1: Okay. Great. And so this is the as we we call it pets, not cattle. I'm guessing, right? That's right. These were all pets. So you had a name for every one of your servers, and you knew you knew it well. Yep, yep, that's right, that's right. And there was, you
0: know, there was like the guy with the spreadsheet, and you'd have to go and like beg him for more machines, and you'd like figure out what type of whiskey he really liked, because you know that was how you were going to get like bumped up in the in the priority list. It wasn't ideal.
1: Okay, and so one of the things that you worked on, or you helped build, or or like that, helped solve this problem is that. Where the service mesh kind of concept came from?
0: Well, so you know, basically, what happened from there is as we went through, you know, kind of pursued this idea that we should break the Twitter application into separate services, and then those services should all be kind of operated independently and, and communicate with each other at runtime. We kind of had to invent a couple different bits of infrastructure to make that work. So one of those things, obviously, was was Mesos, which we didn't invent, but which we productionized. You know, Another thing was the observability stack. So we invested a ton of time and energy in this very fine-grained layer of instrumentation and metrics collection and aggregation so that every team that owned every service had this very, very powerful dashboard that they could look at. And another big component was this library called Finagle that we used to manage the communication that was happening, the runtime communication that was happening between different services. And Finagle started out... Being fairly simple, you know, kind of being this idea of like, hey, we're writing these services, we were writing them in Scala. So it's like, okay, we need this cool Scala library to allow allow us to do functional programming on top of RPC calls. And then over time, Finagle evolved into this sophisticated library that was doing things like, uh, you know, load balancing or request balancing, request level load balancing, and routing, and flow control, and a bunch of other really fancy things kind of under the hood.
1: And so... Finagle. It sounds like is that what became sort of the inspiration for what you built at Buoyant?
0: Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. So when Oliver and I left Twitter, and we were looking back at that transformation, we were like, "Wow,
0: you know, that was like we really learned a lot, of, a lot of stuff in going through that." One of the lessons we really took away was managing that that communication, that runtime communication between services was so critical to Twitter being able to operate that microservices architecture effectively. And as we looked around at the rest of the world, you know, the rest of the world was starting to adopt things like Docker and Kubernetes and like, you know, it was all different from what we had seen at, at Twitter. The details were very different, but the pattern was the same. But no one was really thinking about anything like Finagle. No one was thinking about, okay, once I actually have a hundred services running in this orchestrated environment, like what then?
1: Mm, okay. So you kind of saw this opportunity. You knew based on your experience at Twitter where you had gone down the microservices path. That like the next step would be everyone's going to need a service mesh.
0: Well, (laughs) we weren't quite at that point. Basically, we were like, okay, we've we've seen into the future, right? We know that everyone is going to have these set of problems. And it sure feels like we could save them a lot of trouble if we could just solve that for them. You know, and that was kind of the very original goal. And we knew that, you know, Finagle was like a Scala library for doing you know, functional programming on top of RPC call. So it was, it was, it was kind of, you know, this obscure intersection of, you know, people who were kind of cool enough to be into functional programming, but also fuddy-duddy enough to be on the JVM that, you know, who would even want to use this thing. So we didn't want to just take Finagle and be like, okay, we're, you know, we are the Finagle company. Although Finagle was open source, we could potentially have done that. Oh, okay. And so the, the first thing we did was, okay, let's, let's wrap this up into a proxy. And so that, You know, you actually don't care what language it's written in. You don't care about the programming aspect of it, but you get the operational semantics, you know, without you having to like tie your application code to to anything finagle E. And that was the genesis of this project Lakerd, which is you know kind of uh, what what Boyant spends most of its time and energy on these days.
1: And did the the project come before the company, or did the company come before the project?
0: So in our case, the company came before the project. Like we had the idea, we knew what we wanted to do, but we didn't really start on anything more than a couple prototypes before incorporating and, and trying to build a company around it.
1: okay, so you you left Twitter to, together, ish?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, so actually we were separated by about a year. so I, I left and spent a bunch of time trying a couple things, none of which you know really took off, and then kind of get, tried to get back to my roots. I was like, okay, you know you do the classic exercise, you're like, okay, I want to start a company. You know, let me think about you know the last place where I worked. If I left, like, what would I miss from there, right? And that was kind of the the exercise that started getting getting us down the path to thinking about Finagle and and the power of like, you know, what at the time we were calling you know RPC kind
1: of RPC proxy. Okay, so I actually love this exercise just in general as a way to think about. I mean, what in reality are like the enterprise software opportunities, right? If I left my company today, what are the things that I was like I would miss more than anything else? Right. Yep. Okay. That's a great question for people to think about and you know, as they're kind of going down this path. And so I'm guessing there was a couple other ideas that you had around the same time. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Well, there were as I was thinking about what were the kind of formative things that made Twitter able to go through this transformation. You know, one of them was Mesos itself, but there was a company already, you know, kind of commercializing Mesos. So I was like, well, you know, I don't want to do that because someone else is already doing it. And the other component was that visibility stack that I mentioned. Right. But there were a lot of visibility companies, and I was like, well, I just don't know. It didn't feel quite as interesting to me. The third component, you know, the the Finagle component or the service communication component was wide open, and I was like, man, there, it just feels like there's got to be something here.
1: Okay, cool. And so. Then did you convince Oliver that is that, that's your co-founder right? Yeah. That was the thing you guys should work on together or did he work on Finagle at Twitter?
0: Yeah, that's right. So he was deep into the core infrastructure there. I was actually more on the surface you know layer. I was doing back-end engineering but I was I was staying close to the product. You know, I was working on things like the photos back-end so you upload a photo and it goes through a bunch of, you know, code to do stuff with it. He was down in the in the guts where Finagle and other things were happening. So he was kind of a
1: natural person to do this with. Got it. So you were more of a consumer of Finagle, and you realized how important it was to your workflow. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And so Oliver was more like you know had been much more involved in the project, and so the opportunity was to bring him on board to help build the company around this concept. Yeah, that's right.
0: And I had known him pretty well at, at Twitter. You know, in addition to being like basically an internal customer of his because he was building finagle and other things, we spent a lot of time together because we actually carpooled together. so we you know we we knew each other pretty well at, at
1: that point, yeah, and from the beginning, you decided to run this as an open source company.
0: I think there was you know maybe a
1: couple days in the
0: very beginning when we were like, "hmm, what should we do? Should this be a commercial thing?" But we rapidly realized that Pretty much everything else in this world was open source. like everything else in in kind of the software infrastructure stack was open source. and so doing something proprietary felt strange to us. Also, we're a bunch of open source nerds, so that was what felt very natural to us anyways.
1: Okay, so instead of you know trying to build a proprietary closed source solution that you can go sell at uh, banks for, millions of dollars because it does something you decide to take a, a broader approach which is let's open source it and start to get adoption that way.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Although now that you say it, you know, gosh, could we just have made millions of dollars doing the other thing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so, you know, obviously open source, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the infrastructure software world, most things, I mean even that the banks are going to adopt end up being an open source project that They want to then help and find the commercial version so they can continue to support the delivery of this and also get the other features they want in. So how did you start to get people to use this and pay attention to you? Because even though it's an open source project, it's like not just if you build it, they will come, like you need to get the word out somehow, right? Yeah, so there were two components to
0: that. The first was we had a big struggle around what we were going to call this thing because there wasn't really an equivalent out there, right? And so we started out, you know, like engineers, we started out, you know, kind of saying, oh, well, this is a proxy that, you know, handles RPC calls and, Linkerd is an RPC proxy, and then we we tried to describe that to people, and people were like, "Well, I already have HA proxy." And we were like, "No, no, this is different." And they're like, "Well, I don't even use RPC; we use HTTP." And we'd say, "Well, you know, under our model, you know, HTTP is a subclass of RPC." And then, like, by the time you had that conversation, they had wandered off. <laughs> and so that's amazing. And we tried a couple other things until finally we we had the brilliant idea to call it a service mesh, which has no meaning, right? Or at least at the time had no meaning. It was like. It didn't really communicate a whole lot. It had service in there. It had mesh, which is kind of weird. But what it was, was a, it was like a blank space that, that we could write into. And then we could say, hey, let me tell you about this thing called a service mesh. And like, this is what it does. And once we used that terminology, it started making more sense to people. And that term caught on. And now, you know, a couple of years later, there's like 12 service meshes. So it's now a real-life thing. And our conversations are very different.
1: So that that was a term that you helped sort of bring to the market and help define.
0: More than helped, we birthed
1: it. You birthed it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think about some of the concepts and terms that get defined as is, is really what helps to to define the industry. Did you try to like own the term, like you know, create the web page for it, like the chaos engineering page or the twelve factor page or something to define what a service mesh was, or was that not part of it?
0: Not really maybe not as much as we should have you know i think mostly we were just happy that there was a noun phrase we could use and we could tell you Linkerd is a service mesh and maybe if we had made service mesh.com or.io or whatever things would have gone differently or maybe the other projects would not have called themselves service meshes i don't i don't really know like that wasn't really the focus at the time the focus for us was like hey here's this here's this project and like we need people to use it
1: sure and calling it a service mesh just like made it easier to explain what it was and not get it confused with all the things that it wasn't.
0: That's right. That's right. I mean, there there have been proxies since the beginning of network engineering, right? There've always been proxies. So describing and defining how it was different was like an exercise. And there's not just a proxy component; there's a control plane component. There's like all these things wrapped up in this in this definition. So I'd say you know out of the two or three things that were really formative for us getting open source traction, the first was that terminology.
1: Sure, and then was the next part like, you know, go to the conferences and present and talk, or was it get early customers to adopt it to then have them present and talk? How how did you approach getting it out in the market?
0: Yeah, so the next part was a whole lot of conferences and a whole lot of elbow grease. You know, it was, okay, let's go, it's an open source project, so, you know, that means we can talk about it at, at open source conferences it's not considered like a, a vendor pitch right? I anything it's a project that that people can contribute to and and we tried our best to you know make it a truly open source project and not something that we threw over the wall and so there's a whole lot of that especially in the early days a whole lot of describing it and, and kind of we tied it a lot to the finagle story because one of the problems you have as a very early stage project especially is people don't want to rely on you, right? And especially something like like Linkerd, it sits in this very critical kind of part of your application stack, right? Every single service-to-service call is going through Linkerd. And so, you know, that's like a scary thing to, to do. And so we relied heavily on the Finagle story because Finagle was very, very productionized and was widely used at Twitter and Pinterest and a bunch of other companies. You know, nowadays, Linkerd has got its own momentum and people use it all over the place, so we don't really have to talk about Finagle very much Uh, And in fact, the the newest version of Linkerd is not even built on Finagle, but early on, we really relied on that. And then there's another key component here to the conference thing that that took us a little bit of time to learn, which was understanding which conferences we should be going to.
1: And how did you figure that out? Uh, Trial and error. (laughs) Like what happened for us early on
0: is again, you know, coming into this as engineers, we were like, okay, so what's the requirement for someone? to find Linkerd useful. Well, they've got to be running microservices, right? Because this thing mitigates and manages and monitors service-to-service communication. So let's go to the microservices conferences and let's talk to microservices people. And we found a lot of them because that term was very popular. But almost everyone we talked to were kind of these architects. They they wanted to talk about their their 18-month microservices roadmap. And they wanted to talk about CQRS versus event sourcing versus whatever. And... It was all interesting, but I was like, ah, this isn't really going anywhere at all. And then we kind of stumbled into the Kubernetes community. And in contrast to like these microservices conferences, the Kubernetes meetups and, and conferences we were going to were full of practitioners. And these were like boots on the ground engineers who were like, I've got two weeks to like, make this thing work. Otherwise, I'm going to be fired or, or whatever it was. And we found these conferences full of practitioners as opposed to architects. And that made a huge difference to us.
1: So when you say microservices conferences, I mean, you want to, is there like a specific one that you're like, yeah, that's more academic, or is that is that the problem? How did you? Yeah, you know, you can go to like meetup.com and you can find like
0: twenty microservices meetups in any city. And our experience with those, and again, this is a couple of years old, is that they were full of extremely intelligent people, but they were not very practitioner focused. They were very architect focused, rightly or wrongly. That's what we found. And from the uh, kind of Technology perspective, Linkerd is not that tightly coupled to Kubernetes. You know, it's not like there's anything that's really Kubernetes specific in Linkerd, at least in that in that early version of Linkerd. But from the market perspective, like this was the audience of people who actually needed Linkerd, and they needed it in a short time frame, as opposed to the eighteen month you know microservices roadmap.
1: And did you find that it was? Like sort of more companies as well, like you know sort of the, the user community was commercially focused. Uh, almost
0: everyone was who we found who was adopting Kubernetes was doing it as part of their job. There's always people who are you know playing around with it and, and having fun or who hope to use it as part of their job. But even back in 2017 or so, a whole two years ago, it was largely people who were trying to bring it into their companies and do something real with it.
1: Now interestingly, you know, because you came from Twitter and I'm sure you, you know, you obviously mentioned the the mesosphere concept earlier. 2 years ago, it wasn't as clear that Kubernetes was going to be the clear winner, right? So did you get involved in like the mesosphere and maybe in the standard like Docker swarm kind of world as well or not?
0: So early on, you're right, it was not clear that there was going to be one particular winner, and so we had Linkerd, at least that first version. Now things are a little different. Could talk to Kubernetes. It could talk to Mesos. It could talk to Console, It could talk to Zookeeper. Like we just made it this general purpose Swiss Army knife, and you know got a lot of adoption from people who were not using Kubernetes. But over the past two years, the distribution of of people who are deploying it on Kubernetes has has really increased dramatically.
1: Okay, and so was going to conferences and talking about it at these sort of more practitioner oriented events. Was that the real key to adoption? Or were there, you know, was it joining the CNCF? Like what was really the key piece that has been driving adoption for you?
0: Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. Part of it was that, right? Part of it was just getting out there and trying to get it in front of people and describe why we were doing it. And that was meetups and conferences and and blog posts and everything. We did submit it to the CNCF in I think this was early two thousand seventeen. And it got accepted, and that was a big boost for the project, because this was like maybe the fifth project that, mm. that the CNCF had accepted, and it was like Kubernetes and Prometheus and like some other things and Linkerd, and so you know pretty soon our you know the Linkerd logo was like up next to the Kubernetes logo, and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. Yeah. But there were other reasons that the CNCF made sense for us, anyways. Like this was everything about the CNCF kind of uh, exemplified, you know, the the ideas and beliefs behind. Linkerd, like philosophically, we were really aligned. Like, you know, they're very focused on okay, what is a set of technology that allow you to build these cloud native applications, you know, and and everything that Linkerd was being used for, you know, we didn't really know that term beforehand. but We were like, yes, this is exactly like this is exactly the sort of things that that Linkerd can help with. So it made sense in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, and so this is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, right? CNCF. That's right. And it's a part of the Linux Foundation. How do you describe it? Yeah, it's part of the Linux Foundation. And so, like, talk about that model. Like, you know, we mentioned earlier before we started the call that, like, you don't actually own Linkerd, right? You contributed it to the CNCF, but you are the primary contributors to that specific project. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, when you give your code or your project to a foundation, whether it's ASF, you know, the Apache Software Foundation, or or the CNCF, it's, you know, there's, there's things that you give up as part of that. So as part of that is, you know, you basically assign that IP to the foundation. You assign the trademark to the foundation. And so it's not yours anymore. And that sounds a little scary, right? And our some of our early investors are like, oh, geez, like, what are you doing? Like, you can't, you can't undo that. But the reality is, if your code is licensed under Apache V2 anyways, that is an extremely liberal license. And you're basically giving anyone the ability to, do almost anything that they want with that code, right? You can take an Apache V2 license project and you can build a commercial variant and you can sell that thing and, and you can do whatever you want. And so who owns that IP is, you know, it's not like owning the IP to something that has a proprietary license, right? That ownership is less important really. So, what was important to us, you know, you do give up a little bit, but what was important to us was the fact that the CNCF was going to be able to kind of steward and, and nurture this this project. And for us, it, what was important for us was that Linkerd be a real open source project. Like, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this before, but we didn't want it to be something that you throw over the wall and it's like, yes, it's nominally open source, like you can see the code, but we're not going to let you actually submit any pull requests and we're not going to tell you what the roadmap is and we're not going to answer any questions. It's like... You know that that wasn't the model that we wanted.
1: Okay, that's, that's super interesting. And so you're giving up some control, but that's control that you didn't necessarily want. You wanted it to be more open and like a bigger part of this. Is that right?
0: Yep, that's right. And we wanted it to be alongside, you know, the projects that people were using in conjunction with Linkerd. You know, people were using Linkerd and Prometheus and Kubernetes, you know, as part of building their internal stacks, and it just made sense.
1: Yeah. So from the open source perspective and from the Kubernetes community perspective, the CNCF is—I has mean, become somewhat of a kingmaker in terms of which projects it accepts and it graduates and sort of acknowledges. So that probably wasn't very obvious two years ago when you joined, right? It was the fifth project, but the market has shown that that's a powerful signal.
0: Yeah, and I think in some ways that's unfortunate. And I know the CNCF really doesn't want to be the kingmaker. They don't want to set themselves up that way,
1: but market perception sometimes is not something you have complete control over. Right, I mean, yeah, it just happens to be how people perceive it, so not much choice there. So being a part of CNCF, like it, said, it seems like that's been great for you, right? It's, yep. it's yep. helping drive more adoption, which is your primary goal as an open source project. Yeah, it's been hugely helpful for that. Have there been any downsides to it or not?
0: No, not really. I think if you know, if we had a different business model, if our business model was we are going to build like a commercial version of Linkerd that's going to be like enterprise only. It's going to be like Linkerd Enterprise or Linkerd Plus or something. And, you know, that was going to be proprietary. And then then it would be a problem for us because we'd have to ask them for the trademark. And like, are they going to allow it? And like, maybe they would. I don't know. Like, it would just be weird. But that was never our goal with Linkerd anyways. So we didn't really give up anything that, that we wanted. Sure. <laughs> you know, and we just got the benefit of having this very sophisticated and, and helpful and philosophically aligned organization helping us to, to nurture our open source project.
1: Yeah, and you know if you think about the goal for an early open source company, like you're saying, is primarily adoption, right? That's the first and most important piece. That's right. And the CNCF, I think, is likely an amazing path towards adoption to anything in the cloud-native ecosystem. That's right. It's certainly helpful. Okay, but obviously you're also a venture funded startup, and so you know there's an expectation for some amount of like this is going to be a business, right? This isn't just like a side project, or it's not a open source project out of Twitter that you just do because you want to be able to hire better engineers. This is a company.
0: Oh wait, they told us we could just build open source forever.
1: <laughs> you might you might be able to. so... <laughs> So tell me a little bit about like what the early business model is and how you're looking looking at that.
0: Yeah, so this is where things get interesting, and I think the world does not have this down to a science, right? I I feel like I don't know, maybe it's a kind of a grass is greener perspective, but I feel like if you're building like a straight SaaS startup, it almost feels like it's down to a science. Like you need to have you know one million ARR within eighteen months, and otherwise like get out of here. And then after that, you need to like double, triple, triple, double, or whatever. you know It just feels like there are all these kind of benchmarks that, that people have in place. For open source, it's much more of a, a wild west. There have been very successful open source companies. There have been companies that have seen tremendous adoption but still are trying to figure out the business piece. There are companies that have not seen a lot of adoption but that have a great business model behind it. Like, There's not the formula that's in everyone's mind that's like, okay, here's how you do it. And that said there are a couple models that historically I think open source companies have followed the you know kind of the the classic one is the, you know the Red Hat model of okay it's open source and then we're going to provide services and support on top of that and the received wisdom is you know Red Hat's the only company that could really ever make that work and that no one else could really do that for whatever reason they never go into why then there's like the you know the nginx style models where we've we've got the open source thing but if you want the features that are actually necessary for production, then you got to pay the big bucks for the enterprise thing. And then there's the model of okay, well, we're going to have a hosted version. So like the open source thing, you can do whatever you want, but we're going to have a hosted version, and you know that's how we're going to make our money. And it'll, you won't have to operate it yourself, so it's easier, and you get the economics of, of the cloud and, and all that stuff. And then there's like the fourth model, which I have called the buoyant model. I've <laughs> <or> called the <laughs> no, no, wait, I've called uh, this is the William Morgan. Uh, guaranteed Successful Open Source Business Model, TM. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, you may have heard of it. And here, I think for us, Linkerd is one component of what, what we want to do as a company. It's just one component. And right now, it's what we're focusing on. You know, and We spend almost all of our time and energy on Linkerd and, and, and on adoption. But I don't think it would be right for us to sell Linkerd. I don't think it would be right for us to have Linkerd Enterprise or even a hosted Linkerd doesn't really make a lot of sense because what Linkerd does, the way it works, is it has to be right next to your application code. Right? For this to work, like we've got to be right there in the same data center, in the same pod, in the same cluster, in the same everything. And so you know, the hosted model, isn't, even if we want to do that, wouldn't really make sense for us. But if you look at the broader picture, right, what Linkerd solves is a subclass of this broader problem of hey, companies are moving into this cloud native world and once they do that, everything's different, right? The way that the code is working is different. You know, the way that you've like structured your services and how they communicate is different and Linkerd can help with that. But everything else about the company is different too. The way that the engineering organization operates is different. The way that HR operates is different. The way that finance operates is different. Everything gets changed when you move into this world. And so when you look at things that way, you know there's a set of value that buoyant can provide that's kind of outside of Linkerd and that's probably not very engineering focused in the same way that linkerd is and so really I see Linkerd as a mechanism for kind of enabling buoyant to help companies with the other aspects of what is changing and how they have to change in adopting this cloud native approach to their product
1: interesting, but that's not something that you're offering today, right? That's kind of just the the longer term goal.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right now, all that we care about is open source adoption and and everything that we do and sell and build and say and buy is all in service of making Linkerd the best possible open source service mesh that solves these really concrete and immediate problems for engineers. And that's all that we do right now. Later on, there's some other fun stuff we get to do,
1: but right now we've, we've got to do that. And those, those sort of like early business models are around support and professional services. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so we do
0: support and professional services right now, and that's really the only thing that we do as a, as a company besides build the core open source tech. And you know, I think everyone recognizes, okay, in the long run, that's not like the business model that you want, with the exception of Red Hat, but it's actually great for us. It is, it's really, really good for us. So money's nice, of course, you know, but more than that, what it gets us is it gets us insight into what's happening inside these enterprises, right? And we're a bunch of open source nerds. Like we understand, you know, how the open source world works and we understand Rust and Go and, you know, and how to use your package manager or whatever, We don't understand, hey, if I'm working at this Fortune 500 company and like we're trying to do, you know, we've got all these initiatives and like we're going to deploy this new thing and we're trying to make it cloud native. We don't understand like what problems you're having until we have this commercial relationship, which, you know, even if it's a support relationship, we're sitting in those meetings and we're learning about your roadmap and we're learning about what's painful for you. And that gives us, A, it gives us a lot of empathy, which is very helpful, I think, especially the software engineers, you know, (laughs) and it it gives us insight into the problems that we can solve for these customers in ways other than open source and professional services. So it's very very healthy for us, and it's been a fascinating
1: part of kind
0: of the buoyant aspects
1: of this. Okay, so the thing that I heard there for like a business opportunity is to get a seat at the table to understand. The most complex problems are that's kind of common across these large enterprises as they make this transformation towards the cloud. And part of your goal is to use that sort of unique seat at the table and that unique insight to sort of figure out the next offering that maybe is a more commercial offering.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think you said the most complex problem and it's really I don't want to solve the most complex problem I want to solve the most painful problem that's the easiest thing to solve. <laughs> right? I don't want to do the hard thing, I want to do the easy thing.
1: But maybe more you're kind of using a cross section of different organizations to identify what are the things that are consistently coming up as a roadblock to this, you know, future state of, you know, developer and productivity and reliable systems and things. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: And you know, I tend to be a pretty product oriented person and so i put my product hat on when i had these conversations and and i'm always trying to figure out how are we going to get input from the right people how are we going to understand how are we going to empathize with the people who we have to build products for you know and so any opportunity to do that is something that i reach for as rapidly as i can get it
1: as a vendor myself like the thing that i'm always like pay us so that you can get us to focus on solving your problems all the time like right that's what we love doing is solving problems. So like, if you pay us X amount per month, your problems become the problems that I focus on solving. Right, exactly.
0: That's a good old-fashioned you know, exchange money for value relationship.
1: Yeah, it's, hey, it works, capitalism. Right. <laughs> okay, so are you actively trying to sell support in ProServe or are those more like kind of inbound interest and then you'll you know, provide a contract?
0: So right now, you know, we're kind of on the cusp. What we've done for the past few years is to be pretty reactive to it. You know, we put a form up on a web page and we're like, okay, if you need it, you need it. Um, that's starting to shift a bit, especially as Linkerd adoption is, we're not just seeing the super cutting edge, super high tech companies that are very familiar with open source technology and very adept at wiring things together. You know, that was kind of the vanguard of of the companies adopting Linkerd. Now we're seeing kind of the second wave of companies who, you know, don't always have the time or, you know, in some cases the the talent necessary to really be able to take an open source project like Linkerd and like jam it together with Kubernetes and Docker and like get a deploy pipeline going and, and do all that kind of with their own internal staff or they don't have the time to do it. And so things like ProServe start becoming more important for us because we do want those companies to be successful with Linkerd They need help
1: and we should
0: be able to help them do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, and realistically, you are probably far more effective and efficient at doing it rather than like the huge learning curve that's required to pick up this new set of technologies and workflows. Like, if you've done it a bunch of times for a bunch of different customers, like it's not that hard for you to go turn it on for them, whereas it would take them, you know, weeks or months to get up that learning curve.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And one of the things I think I had to learn as a first time founder who had never run a company before is that companies are spending money no matter what. Right. It's not like you as a consumer and you're like, oh, should I spend four dollars for this coffee at Starbucks or should I, you know, or do I want to spend a dollar on this iPhone app? I don't know. I don't know. It's like if you're a company, you're spending money like you're either spending it on employees doing stuff or you're spending it on like purchasing something. And so you don't have this mental hurdle of like, am I going to spend this or not? The question for you as the buyer is: Okay, how am I going to spend that? Am I spending it on people internally, or am I spending it on a product? And like,
1: what are the implications of that? And that's a big mental shift. Yeah, it's a great point because it's acknowledging that their budget is there, and that they're either going to, you know, invest one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year for an engineer to like hire them on and manage this, or they're going to spend the same amount or slightly more, or slightly less to bring in a team to do the same thing.
0: Right, and then you can just make that case to them. You can say, "Hey, look, you want this thing? You can do it internally. And it's going to cost you X, or you can have us do it, and it'll cost you, you know, one
1: tenth of that, or or whatever it is." Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit here. I want to dive back into the the service mesh world. A lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are running enterprise software companies. Maybe they're running a SaaS application. Help me understand why I should be using a service mesh as part of my architecture. In, you know, in either of those cases? Yeah, so
0: the number one qualification is, are you adopting this cloud-native approach? Are you adopting Kubernetes and Docker and microservices? If you're not, then Service Mesh is not going to help you at all. Like There's no reason for you to even think about it. But if you are, well, then you're going to need it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to end up with 10 or 20 or 50 services running and you are going to be in a very precarious situation because one small failure in one of those services is going to rapidly escalate to take down the rest of the site. Or you're going to be in a situation where no one can understand what's going on at any point in time because each of those services was written by a different team using a different set of conventions. You know, We've done all this work with Docker and microservices to like enable this huge organizational decoupling and now you can ship code even faster than ever before. But the state of production is now this totally you know wild west state. Those problems can be addressed directly with the service mesh. That's what the service mesh can help you. It can add reliability, it can add visibility, and it can add security to these systems in a way that doesn't involve the developers having to do anything. So this is a very platform focused tool.
1: And I'm wiring just all the low level components that I have that make up the various services in my application be that, Databases or workers or you know queues or like app layers, like all of those are using a service mesh for something?
0: So it, it depends on where you want to start. Typically people will start with the kind of synchronous set of services that are often stateless, and then they'll extend from there into the database or the storage layer and, and other things. You can get very fancy and have lambdas and, and things like that. But the bulk of the service mesh usage that, that I've seen today is around you know the services that are often talking HTTP or gRPC if you're if you're really fancy to each other they're serving an API or they're serving a web page or, or a transaction or something that you know has a strict time requirement like I have to respond to the user in 200 milliseconds otherwise they're going to go away or they're going to like swipe again or, or something bad is going to happen And those are the situations where the service mesh can immediately give you visibility and increase the reliability of your services and give you a bunch of security semantics. Again, without you having to write any code or get the
1: development team involved. And are my services talking through the service mesh? Is like a centralized hub and spoke or is like the service mesh create the sort of peer-to-peer connections between these different services?
0: So there's two components to it. There's what we call the control plane, and then there's the data plane. And the data plane is a set of very lightweight proxies that get embedded next to every instance of every service. So if I've got service A and service B, and A has like six instances and B has 40 instances, well, you've got 46 instances of Linkerd, of the Linkerd proxy that are stuck next, to that are just sitting next to each application. So that's fully distributed And we do a bunch of magic to, you know, route the TCP traffic through those things automatically. And so the application doesn't even know that it's there. So that's a data plane and that's fully distributed on the control plane. You have a set of components that are kind of sitting off to the side and they're coordinating the behavior of those proxies. They're receiving telemetry from those proxies. You know, you've got maybe three instances of the control plane running or something. If you're really concerned about high availability and the control plane is providing you with a uniform API to change the behavior and a uniform like point of visibility into everything that's happening to the traffic that's going through those
1: proxies. And is it going through that encrypted? and Unencrypted? How does it go through?
0: It's whatever you want to do. So one of the big use cases for Linkerd is doing encryption transparently to the application for all internal calls. So what'll happen is, you know, A talks to B, right? Service A talks to service B. That means A talks through its Linkerd proxy to the destination Linkerd proxy to the destination B instance. So it's actually going through two proxies, right? So these proxies have to be fast, right, for this to make sense. And Linkerd can both initiate and terminate TLS on either side of that. So now your application doesn't care about encryption at all. It doesn't know about certificates or any of that stuff, but you get encryption across all of the communication, and so that's a really nice way of adding these security primitives without, again, without having to deal with the developer teams. And the reason why I keep coming back to that point is a lot of what the service mesh solves is actually these organizational issues where, you know, I, as the, as a platform owner, well, I want to add security, right? Like I want things to be secure, but if I'm asking each of my developer teams to implement TLS and to like do it in this particular way, well, they've all got their own roadmaps, right? And they've got their own product managers who are like pushing them to do all this other stuff. And so that becomes a very difficult challenge, especially as a company gets bigger. But if I can just do this at the platform layer, well, then I have control over it, I have ownership over it, and the developers don't even know that it's there.
1: Mm, okay, so then if I have a piece of SaaS software that I'm hosting and one of the requirements is really around enterprise level security. You know, today I think a lot of people will talk about, you know, on their security white paper that data is encrypted in transit, right? And so they'll talk about, you know, some little bullet point about TLS. And so you're saying, well, it's like, that's great. That's between the client and your server, but like internally your systems might be talking unencrypted. And so you should implement a service mesh like Linkerd in order to ensure that all communication in all systems is actually encrypted as it's moving around.
0: Yeah, that's right. In fact, you can drop Linkerd in. Linkerd ships with a CA, a certificate authority. Linkerd will issue the certs. It'll distribute them to the proxies. The proxies will do the encryption. It'll initiate it and terminate it. they will validate against the certs. You get all this stuff for free out of the box without the developers having to do any work.
1: Cool, and so it allows you as as an organization to improve your security posture from that perspective.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's this whole model which I really like called zero trust networking, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of what we had at Twitter. So what we had at Twitter and which is what many companies have had and still have, is we had this kind of hardened perimeter. Right. So getting into the data center was very difficult. But once you were in, kind of anything could talk to anything else. And what is happening, I think my sense is it's because people are moving to the cloud. Right now you're running your code on these systems that you don't control and on a network that you don't have ownership of and that maybe there's other tenants there that are like doing who knows what. Now you don't really have a perimeter anymore. So that means you've got to push all those security semantics down to the application layer. And so a service mesh like Linkerd is a great way of doing that because we can do the TLS for you. We can do the certificates. We can provide things like cryptographically verified identity. If you're using Kubernetes, we can... You know, tie that to service accounts. There's all sorts of cool stuff we can do for you that fit right into this model of zero trust security.
1: Oh, okay. So you can actually use these certificates for each service to actually do an authenticated request, not just encrypted.
0: Yep, that's right. And you can get very fancy with this. You can say, okay, A is not allowed to talk to B because, like, I haven't allowed it to. Or, you know, maybe you can even get finer grain than that and talk about, like, who's allowed to do what. Like, can we look at the, Kind of the user identity of who's making the request. I've got to put a bunch of asterisks in here and say, significant portion of this are roadmap items for Linkerd. This is not like a totally solved problem. But as Linkerd is used more and more in the enterprise, and as we have these relationships that we're, you know, as as we watch people and help people adopt Linkerd for these situations, we're fleshing out this very sophisticated security roadmap because these are things that people need to solve.
1: Yeah, role-based access control is something you're kind of talking to there. It's I think always super important for for enterprise adoption, right? You need to be able to, you know, implement sort of the least privileged concept and and deliver that down to every request and make sure that that's that's carried out.
0: Yep. And the notion of doing it at the platform layer, I think is is part of what makes this so powerful. Because the same thing works with telemetry, you know, or 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 visibility. Let's call it visibility. So, you know, we've already got hopefully. Your, your services are already instrumented and they have you know, all these metrics and maybe you've got Prometheus or Datadog or S- signal effects or something set up. What Linkerd gives you is this uniform layer of visibility over all your services. And We can't tell what's going on inside the services, but we can tell you what's the success rate of each service and what's the latency distribution, and what's the request volume, and how are those things changing over time. And we can do it in a way that's uniform across every service. It doesn't matter what language the service is written in, or what framework it's using, or when it was deployed, or any of that stuff. And that uniform layer of visibility, even though it's not the complete picture, is hugely powerful to the platform teams, simply because it can be decoupled from what the developers are doing.
1: Okay, so shifting gears a little bit again, and you were kind of talking about, cloud adoption and, and we're talking about open source and I think one of the interesting sort of areas around open source is sort of the role that these large cloud providers play in the open source ecosystem right and so you know obviously there's a couple different angles on this but you know I'd love your perspective and and you know because particularly one of the cloud providers has a service mesh that they talk about and they host you know istio that Google has is a, is a seems to be a big focus there. So maybe kind of talk about how that impacts your company and your roadmap.
0: When Istio first appeared, it was very frightening, right? Because we were used to operating in a world where we had no competitors, right? We invented the service mesh term. Linkerd was the service mesh. It was getting a ton of visibility and traction. And then all of a sudden, the you know 800-pound gorilla comes into the room. It's like, I'm Google, and I invented Kubernetes, and now I have invented Istio. And <laughs> we were like, oh no. <laughs> But over time, we found that it's actually been really helpful for Linkerd because it, it served to validate the space in a major, major way, right? Like, it's not just this little project, Linkerd sitting off to the side being like, hey, Service Mesh is a thing. Now it's, it's Google and IBM and VMware and, and now HashiCorp and you know, everyone has a Service Mesh project or product. So that's been hugely validating for Linkerd. There's a lot more I can say about kind of the design differences between the two and and so on that, that I won't go into here. But if you look at the kind of the goals of Istio, like why is Google doing Istio? Like why is it investing all this time and energy in it? It's because it's a strategy to get you on to Google Cloud, right? Where Google Cloud will run Istio for you, right? You just check that checkbox and I got Istio. Okay. And that's great. Because it gives you a bunch of functionality. In fact, the value proposition for Istio is very similar to the value proposition for Linkerd. It's got visibility and it's got security semantics and it's got uh, you know all the other things that it has. But it works great on GCP and then mm, doesn't really work that well or doesn't really exist in other places, right? And so it's it's a it's a mechanism kind of like AWS App Mesh, you know, to get you locked into these cloud platforms and that's fine right that's that is the game that the cloud providers play is they want to get you using their thing so they build functionality that is powerful and that's specific to their platform and then you, you rely on it and then you can never leave the goals of Linkerd obviously are quite different right we are an open source project we're not a cloud provider and so you know the kind of the design philosophy behind Linkerd and how we expect you to run it is all very very different we expect you to operate Linkerd yourself. And so that means that we care very much about the complexity that introduces and how big is it and how many system resources does it take? You know, if this is built as a a feature of a cloud provider, then you don't care about that stuff because you're gonna eat that stuff yourself, right? You're not gonna expose that to the users. So that ends up informing a lot of design decisions. And if you look at the two projects, like they're very, very different because even though the value props are similar, they're very, very different in nature and in in product shape because the goals are very different.
1: Yeah, I mean, one other piece I think that's interesting is tying it back to the CNCF, right? Is that Google has obviously contributed Kubernetes to the CNCF, but it hasn't contributed Istio, right? That's right. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? So this is, you know,
0: I'm not privy to the internal discussions, but my sense is that Google will not Ever contribute Istio to the CNCF? They say they will, and maybe they will. But my sense is that they don't want to. They want it to be the thing that ties you to GCP. They want it to be like a value add that really only works in GCP, and maybe in IBM Cloud because there are IBM folks, you know, involved as well. And so they're motivated to, you know, make it kind of nominally open source, right? But not to make it really open source because again, they want to get you using it on GCP, and they want it to be great experience. Right? and if you are on GCP and you click that checkbox, you get all this cool stuff for free, and that's great.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of conversation, not not just around you know the cloud providers coming out with competitive alternatives, which is what we're talking about, but about the nature of cloud providers and their ability to take an open source project and this is like kind of the Mongo example, right, where they can take these projects and then host their own version. And extract a lot of the value from that open source project, right?
0: Yeah, so that's certainly been a hot topic in the open source startup community recently because of incidents like the the MongoDB thing, and and because of startups changing the licenses to kind of counteract
1: that sort of behavior. Yeah, or at least attempt to counteract, right? I think or attempt, yeah, right? Yeah, there's this very interesting question around you know how will these two forces right infrastructure as a service and open source how will these shape the enterprise software ecosystem in the decades to come oh. <laughs> i am so hyper focused on this one little microcosm that you know
0: i don't have a great big picture view my sense is you know the days where you could build a company and say okay the way that we're going to operate is we're going to have an open source project and then we'll have a hosted version of it and that's how we'll make money and that's kind of the end of your business plan. I think those days are numbered. I don't think that's a viable strategy for for new companies. I think existing companies for whom that's their strategy, okay, that's well and good. You probably have to do additional things beyond that, but I don't think that's a viable strategy for new companies. I think you have to do something different because if you just do that, then the moment your project becomes successful... Someone like AWS can just offer a hosted version of it, and maybe it won't be quite as good, you know, and they won't have your drive and your talent and the kind of core DNA, but they'll have the source code, (laughs) you know, and they know how to operate services at scale, and that becomes a real threat if that's your business model.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting world, right? I mean, there's so many different angles to take on this. I like your perspective of look we just want to get into these problems and figure out how we can solve them. I mean at some point do you think you'll offer something proprietary? Oh yeah,
0: 100%. 100%. I think there are so many problems out there that we can solve in a very concrete and immediate way with proprietary software that companies will want to pay for. I mean there's things that you know just don't make sense as an open source project for you to do. Right, it's like okay, have a huge identity system that you know maps into kind of existing identity systems that companies have. Well, I mean, you could, but it's not really. It's kind of weird for an open source project to to do that. Like it'd be weird for Linkerd to have a bunch of logins and stuff. Like it's a dashboard. You know, you know, there's no reason for Linkerd to have like a users database or something. And so there are things that just make sense to be solved. You know, as proprietary software. And there's so many problems that these companies are having that I'm very optimistic about this because there's so much that we can help with.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: And Linkerd is is one part of it. It's a big piece of the puzzle, but it's not the full puzzle.
1: Wait, I, I can't just deploy my entire company on Linkerd. Well, yes, <laughs> of course. Just the whole thing is just Linkerd. I don't write any other code. It's just Linkerd.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of how buoyant works.
1: (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) William, thank you so much today. This has been great. I really appreciate your insights.
0: Grant, it's been a
1: complete pleasure. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. Packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.